Welcome to Keep the Bastards Honest, the podcast of the Australian Democrats. I'm your host, Alana Mitchell, and on this episode, farmers really do want action on climate change. Dr. Anika Molesworth is a farmer, an author, a newly minted PhD in agriculture and environmental science, and a champion for agroecological systems resilience, which is a fancy way of saying she's committed to helping create sustainable and vibrant farming landscapes and building the capacity for farmers to respond to climate change. Thanks to her work on raising awareness of the impact of climate change on farms and what action can be taken to reduce emissions and adapt to changing conditions, Anika is a sought-after speaker and educator, and she very kindly joined Steve and I to talk about the challenges facing farmers in Australia and around the world. We recorded this prior to COP26, Otherwise, I think Anika would have had much to say on Australia's poor showing there, having presented at previous COPs herself. Anika, Steve and I pay our respects to the traditional owners of the lands upon which we met and their elders past and present. Sovereignty never ceded. So Anika, your book has recently been released. It was released in September. It talks about our agriculture and our food systems as an end-to-end thing that we need to improve that has some clear issues and some really major opportunities for improvement. First and foremost, how has the book been received? The book has been received really well. I've been delighted by it, actually, because it can be quite daunting, nerve-wracking, actually putting one's stories and thoughts out there in the world for everyone to see and critique. But I have been absolutely delighted by, yeah, by the responses, by the comments from complete strangers sending me a message saying, you know, that book really resonated with me and thanks for putting it out there in the world. It has quite a strong personal story to it. You talk a lot about your childhood, you talk a lot about your parents and your grandparents or your grandmother in particular, that must be even sort of doubly so a a moment of vulnerability putting those sorts of stories out into the world. Absolutely. And especially because I'm actually quite an introverted private person. And so actually talking about my family and, you know, opening the doors to my home life um, and my grandparents in particular was something that I wrestled with a bit myself. But when, you know, I really reflected on the story that I wanted to tell and why I actually feel so connected to the causes and the topics that I do, it comes down to a very, a foundation of family and the things that I love and respect and the things that I worry about losing or being damaged. And so I had to start the story there so then I could build upon it of why I have been con- become so concerned about climate change and why I want to see action in this area. There's a lot in there about the impacts of climate change on our food systems. There's also a lot in there about the uh, issues just around the diversity of foods. There was some, I mean, the book is full of some incredible statistics that you sort of throw in there every now and again, like a, a, a nice little uh, bit of seasoning into the rest of the storyline. But some of the uh, some of the statistics around the the lack of diversity in the foods we eat is quite alarming. Yeah, I'm, and I love that phrase, the seasoning that I've sprinkled throughout the book. So thank you for that. I'm going to use it. Yes, in the modern food system, we are you know, eating very narrow range of foods. And we're not actually celebrating the yeah. incredible diversity of foods that are actually out there. Um, and this is incredibly apparent in Australia, actually, because we really do not celebrate native foods here at all, which I find quite disappointing because when I go for a walk in the paddock out here, I'm constantly grazing. Like I'm picking, you know, native spinach, native mustard, salt bush, bringing home ruby saltbush berries and like putting, sprinkling them on salads and focaccias. And this native food is delicious, nutrient dense food. It's been being, it has been eaten for thousands and thousands of years. And yet you don't see it in the supermarket shops. You don't see recipes on these, you know, for these ingredients. You don't see them on menus. 
And that's really disappointing. And when we actually talk about climate smart food systems and what do climate smart foods actually look like, that is native foods, that is local foods, that is seasonal foods, it is nutrient dense foods. And we have such an array and abundance here in Australia that we just have not tapped into in the way it should. One of the the statistics that stood out for me was the idea that the vast bulk of our food comes from just sort of seven or so species of plant that, and I, I don't recall which ones they are, but I'm, I'm assuming things like wheat and rice are, are, are well and truly in there. But it's like, a, that's an incredibly narrow range. And obviously we produce it therefore in bulk. I was watching a, a David Attenborough special just recently and there was a shot of the amazon rainforest right on the edge between where the rainforest ends and the palm trees for palm oil begin and it was an incredibly devastating scene but it was it was also an incredibly sad one because you've gone from this incredibly rich incredibly diverse system that has been alive and sustained people for thousands of years and been around for much, much longer. And then this sort of hard, very unnatural boundary. And on the other side of that, this unicrop. Yeah. The, you know, the way that we are treating species and losing species and narrowing that genetic base in plants and animals is incredibly Mm. scary. And it's putting ourselves at risk, not to mention, you know, the proper functioning of ecosystems. Because species have thresholds, temperature thresholds, um, you know, salinity thresholds, moisture thresholds, all of this. And if you have smaller and smaller genetic range, then if you have an extreme heat wave, for instance, or you have a certain pest outbreak, you can topple something en masse and have a devastating and widespread effect from that. So actually preserving genetic diversity and making sure that we have an abundance of species and proper ecosystem functioning is just so important. So we absolutely need to move away from this, you know, the monoculture of the mind, which then creates these monocultures in the field, that this is acceptable, that this is how we should be producing food. That's not acceptable. It's not how we should be producing food. We should not be working against nature. We should be working with her and learning from her. And nature is all about the diversity and the interrelationships of plants and animals. And we really need to be learning how to encourage that that vibrancy and abundance of species so we actually have healthy food and farming systems. As a history nerd, this discussion is just sort of blowing my mind a bit because we we talk about colonisation in terms of the impact it had on First Nations people, but, you know, it's having a profound impact on our plant and animal species, but the flip side of that also is is what we as a settler class have been denied, the enormous variety of food and, and, and wealth of food that we've been denied by the sort of imperialistic notion of coming in and they grew wheat and corn and everything in Europe and therefore we should do that here as opposed to nurturing and, and benefiting from the vast array of foods that we had here already for thousands of years previously. It's it's really quite heartbreaking to listening to this, <laughs> apart from the immediate crisis that we're facing in terms of climate change and, and, and the species loss and everything. It's just that that loss that we've had in terms of, of not embracing what was here. Absolutely. And this is a something I write about in the book too, this sort of this generational amnesia of like what our parents had, our grandparents, our great grandparents had is completely different from what we have now and what we accept as normal. And we don't actually have to cast our eye back very far in in history terms to go, wow, the world was radically different. You know, the the abundance, the prevalence of species, what was being eaten, what was considered normal now is definitely not considered normal now. (laughs) Um, And so we have to do a much better job of looking back, understanding, you know, what the world has been like in the past how radically we have changed it in such a short period of time and we've changed it for the worse and then use that understanding for, okay, well, how are we going to move forward? What is that vision that we want for this world and how are we going to create that? Because the trajectory that we are on is definitely not a good one. Your your 
book is is quite an optimistic one for all that it deals with a subject that's very serious. It talks about these issues of climate change and the very serious impacts that we're seeing. We're recording this session a day after two tornadoes were reported in Queensland, which uh, make the third and the fourth tornadoes that have been reported in Australia in the last 14 days. I'm 50 years old and in my lifetime, I've heard of five tornadoes being sighted in Australia. To have four in the past fortnight is a sign that catastrophic change, I mean, tornadoes are an extreme weather event. We've had four in the past uh, couple of weeks. These are, these are catastrophic changes, but the tone of the book is actually quite optimistic. There are things that we can be doing. There are things that we can be changing in the way in which we think about food in each of our homes that can begin to make a difference. That's right. I think so often when we look at climate change science and we read the reports, one can very easily feel overwhelmed that, my gosh, this is a big and complex problem and how are we ever going to get ourselves out of this mess? But it is so important not to stop the conversation there because, yes, it's bad what has happened and the damage we have lost and the irreversible change that we have caused. And we should front up to that and accept, okay, well, this is what we as a species have done to our common home. But we have this incredible wealth of knowledge and evidence here. And so how are we actually going to use it? Are we going to switch off and, you know, bury our heads in the sand and curl up in fetal position under the blanket? Or are we going to do something with it? And I think when we start to look at what we can do with that information, what we can do with our incredible knowledge and skills and expertise and innovations that are actually out there, the conversation starts to become quite exciting. And when we start talking about, well, how do we fix these problems? How do we bring down carbon and put it back where it belongs in the soils and vegetation? How do we transition minds and behaviours into something that is more planetary friendly? What can we as individuals do and as communities and regions and nations and as a global society do? And there are an abundance, an absolute abundance of things that we can be doing. And when I focus on that, I become really excited. I become really optimistic because it is totally achievable. Like it's not even blue sky thinking of one day we should create something. It's okay, well, let's stop cutting down the trees. Let's start planting more trees. Let's stop throwing out one in four supermarket bags of food because food waste, if it was a country, would be the third largest emitter. So we can cut out food waste pretty easy. That's not a big issue. We can electrify everything. I mean, we are the sunniest and one of the windiest continents on Earth. Like, it makes sense to actually move off harmful fossil fuels and onto renewable energies. You've got the chief scientists saying we could be a renewable energy superpower exporting this across the world, helping our economy. So it's doable. So what's holding us back from yeah. doing this? Like it is a matter of leadership and determination at this point. We've got the solutions at hand. We know what to do. We've got the technologies. It is just a matter of willpower and determination at this point. And I really do think we are at a social tipping point where so many people are engaged in this topic now. So many people are saying, I am concerned about climate change. I want to see us do something more about it. And I think once you get to those social tipping points, change will and can happen very quickly. And that's what we need. So I think it's so important for people yeah. who are highly engaged like us to, you know, just give it that extra little shove, <laughs> that push, so we <clears throat> start tumbling in that right direction and actually see an acceleration of those good projects. Let's, let's talk about action for a moment and and that desire to see things change we're only it's only a few weeks in the past that the ipcc report into the physical science of of climate change was released a, a rather alarming and damning collection of i think something like 14,000 different academic papers over 100 scientists from around the world collaborated on that report and it sets out in quite stark detail the sorts of physical changes that we're going to be seeing in our planetary climatic systems as a result of climate change. It was very, very clear. Helpfully, there's a whole section dedicated for policymakers. So if you don't want to dig into the science, there was a separate section of the report just for people who make policy. We are nine days away, 10 days away from the COP26 
summit in Glasgow where countries from around the world, signatories to the Paris Agreement, come together and will put forward their new commitments to reducing emissions. And Australia is going in there with, so far, nothing. We're going in there with absolutely nothing. Should we be alarmed, embarrassed, appalled? I'm not I'm not even sure where my emotions are on on that lack of action anymore. I vote for all of the above. Yeah, I would say so too. Sorry Um, to be flippant, but it's... (laughs) Yeah, uh, incredibly frustrated would probably be my main emotion because there seems to be a dismissal of the science of just how bad it is and we've had the science the evidence at hand for decades now it's not like this has suddenly been sprung on us yeah it's not just (laughs) september you know like oh where where did this come from no 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 you're right it's it's 40 50 60 years some reports going back 100 years that make it clear what's going to happen exactly and And what frustrates me is we talk about the lost decade of of, on climate action that we've had since the abbott government took power in 2013 and, and weaponized climate as, as a political cause. But really, we've known about this in like the urgency of, of, of what is needed for at least 30 years. I remember learning about the hole in the ozone layer when I was in primary school. And I, I feel like if, if we had actually started reducing emissions and doing something about it back then, wouldn't how far well not just in terms of you know how far along we'd be in addressing the problem and the fact that we wouldn't be experiencing the black summer and, and everything that we've been experiencing and at the moment you know, including tornadoes and all that sort of thing because we would have avoided the one degree warming we've gotten so far but just in terms of the technological transformation and the the extraordinary changes in society that we could have achieved if we'd spent the last 30 years decarbonizing and and investing in the extraordinary technological advances that we're getting now, you know, in terms of electric vehicles and all that sort of thing, because the argument's always been, oh, well, you know, the technology wasn't ready back then. But had the investment in that technology happened back then, it would have been. I mean, just over 12 months ago, we didn't have a vaccine for this new virus that came out. But within 12 months, due to turning the attention of, of the world scientists onto the problem of solving that particular issue, We've got not just one, but several highly effective vaccines in less than 12 months. And it just makes me so mad when I think about that in terms of what we could have achieved to combat climate change had we treated that with the same level of urgency that we treated the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. We should have been dealing with this problem in the serious and urgent manner yesterday. The next best day is today. And so I think that's what we need to think about of, yes, you know, it is frustrating and heartbreaking and incredibly saddening what we have lost, you know, the time we have lost, the damage that has been done, the species that will never return. But we can't give in to hopelessness and helplessness now and commit those incredible environments and those credible species that still do exist to that same unfortunate fate. And so we have to do something now. I mean, it is our responsibility being alive at this point in time to do something about it. And each of us will have something different that we can do, Um, different capacity to act on this challenge, different spheres of influence that we can make positive change in. So it's recognising that we live at such a critical time. It is using the best available science despite the difficulty and gravity of what that science says, but looking at, okay, well, what can I do now with with that information? And those small steps, those seemingly small steps and actions that I take, if taken by the 25 million other Australians and by everyone else on the globe, actually do add up. And they are the ripple effects that cause a tidal wave of positive action. And that's what we need right now. Oh, that makes me so happy. (laughs) Like, you know, because it is so easy to get bogged down in the, oh, God, the world's going to end thinking and, you know, we've wasted all this time and our leaders aren't leading and and all this sort of thing. But it's really heartening to have a positive outlook on it in terms of, well, the world hasn't ended yet and there's still so much we can do. Absolutely. And I think it is drawing our energy and resilience 
from those things that we care so much about. And when I walk out in the paddock and I see some of the trees that have died in the last drought, that breaks my heart. But I see other ones that are still alive. And because they're still alive, I'm going to still keep fighting for them. I'm still going to keep advocating to bring down those emissions and get the temperature back to a stable state because I will not accept being a silent witness and watching those other species, that environment, disappear before my eyes. It's my responsibility to do something about it. And and I think if more of us felt that responsibility and felt I can do something and my contribution is is wanted, then I think we would, you know, see progress happen a lot quicker. We've seen, I think, recently support for significant action on climate change in Australia is now uh, something like 70%, maybe higher. And it doesn't seem to matter which part of the country you go and ask that question. Support for action on climate change is at its highest level that we've seen. It's high in the urban centres, it's high in the regional centres, it's high in the rural towns. Whether it's a tourism destination or a a farming centre, we seem to have very, very similar attitudes. Um, I saw a recent split between urban and regional attitudes around should we be funding more coal, oil and gas And pretty much around two-thirds of the country said no, and a third of the country said, look, maybe, and and, and a bunch said, I don't know. There weren't sort of strong advocates except in sort of quite narrow areas. But the, the bottom line was that it didn't really seem to matter where you looked. The fact that we need to stop funding coal, oil and gas, the fact that we need to stop expansion of existing mines, stop further gas exploration, stop further extraction operations, like all of those sorts of things seem to be pretty pretty solidly held by two-thirds of the population or greater. And yet we had this sort of fiscal exercise over the weekend of the National Party holding uh, a party room vote to see whether or not they might possibly agree to a net zero target by 2050, maybe. I just don't understand that aspect of it. But we must we must be getting close to the point where people will shift their vote as a result of it, will we'll actually take solid action to change representatives who clearly aren't representing what they want. Yeah, absolutely. And if you, yeah... <laughs> say you're standing up for rural and regional Australia and you're not standing up for climate change, I mean, something is not quite marrying there because people in the regions are the first and hardest hit by the impacts of climate change. I mean, most farmers can look out the front door and see a drought in action, a flood, a bushfire. They know very really, very acutely what the impacts of climate change are not just to you know their businesses and the productivity and profitability of their farms, but to the environments that they call home. And many of these farms are intergenerational. I mean, they are landscapes that have been cared yeah. for and loved you know, since grandparents, great-grandparents. It's also taking a huge mental health toll on people. I mean, living through a drought, seeing your livestock burnt in bushfires, that has incredible devastating effects on people's mental health. And the people that I know in the regions, the farmers that I hang out with, they get climate change. They understand it is very much here and now, and they want better political leadership on this issue. They also realise that we are missing out on some very real opportunities. And by delaying climate action, we risk further damaging the natural world, further damaging our businesses and how they operate, being locked out or penalised in international markets, there's not many wins to delaying climate action, (laughs) if none. One of the frustrations is this argument that it's going to cost. And we don't discuss in any way near enough the very real costs that are already happening in, in the ways that you've so eloquently just described, those have very real personal, very real financial, very real economic, very real environmental costs, and we are already paying them. The estimates of the economic impact of the 2019-20 bushfires range up to $200 billion in indirect cost to the economy 
let alone the physical damage to our environment, let alone the hundreds of millions of native animals that were killed, the local industries that were damaged, the lives of people that were lost, that's already happening. One of those tornadoes that I, I, I spoke about was in Armadale, Deputy Prime Minister's home seat in New England, you know, the largest town in the area in Armadale was hit by a tornado, which should be remarkable. And yet going into this meeting on Sunday, he, he really did not seem all that concerned. He seemed concerned about getting money for an inland rail to help coal. That seems to be his bargaining chip. Yeah, it's disappointing for sure. We've spoken about some of the things that can be done around agriculture. I've seen uh, a plan from the Conservation Foundation, uh, the ACF, was released last week that detailed plans on, uh, and it was it was produced in con- in conjunction with Accenture. I think it was it was funded jointly by the Business Council of Australia and and a number of other organisations. It wasn't just environmental groups. You know, the BCA are well and truly representing business interests and and the financial uh, sector. But it was quite clear that the opportunities of switching to a a new focus for our economy, a decarbonised focus for our economy, they detailed out a whole range of different industries that Australia is very well positioned to grow from renewable energy just to start with through things like green uh, hydrogen, you know, low-carbon coal, low-carbon concrete, things that we know people are going to want in this decarbonised global economy, opportunities to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars in extra import revenue, our export revenue, sorry, hundreds of thousands of jobs, and most of it in regional Australia. Most of it in farming communities, in regional towns, uh, the sorts of centres that you would go, what are we going to do when the coal mine closes? Those dozens of people will have thousands of opportunities if we just have the political will to apply even a fraction of the response that we've seen to the pandemic to this issue of climate change. It's it's Absolutely. remarkable that that opportunity, which sits so firmly, isn't being taken up. Yeah. And I think when you actually hold up, you know, the the cost of climate inaction alongside the benefits of doing something, it becomes incredibly obvious, you know, what we need to be doing. So in terms of what's actually happening out here in the region. So I think Abez said, um, released a report that the average Australian farm is losing $30,000 per year because of climate change today. Murray Darling Basin, I mean, uh, there's 40% less inflows these days than to the 2000s and you know of course less inflows less water allocations higher water costs for farmers that flows on to higher food costs like this has a really you know big flow and effect right throughout the farming community and into wider society and then as you rightly say when we look at the opportunities that are actually there within our reach so many of them actually land in rural and regional australia And I think this is why one actually sees so much support for climate action from the farming community, for instance, in that when the National Party are saying, you know, we need to exclude agriculture, the agricultural sector saying, hey, we actually want to be included. Like there is a very uh, disjointed uh, communication happening here between our representatives and the sector itself. We've got the National Farmers Federation calling for net zero emissions by 2050. You've got the meat and livestock sector imposing a net zero emissions by 2030 on itself. You've got Farmers for Climate Mm. Action, who represents Mm. over six and a half thousand farmers in Australia now, saying that we need really ambitious targets by 2030 in the range of 75% reductions on 2005 emissions. So when you actually cast your eye across Mm. Australia and look at who are some of the most vocal communities and people wanting climate action? who are actually doing climate action, not just catch crying and saying this is something we should do, but then actually rolling out solar panels in amongst the vineyards, actually grazing cattle amongst the wind turbines, actually doing research, incredible research with how do we reduce methane emissions 
from selective breeding of livestock, feed additives. There mm-hmm. are so many things that are, are already being done in the farming community. And the farmers and the agricultural sector are saying mm-hmm. that then opens up huge market opportunities for us. It adds value to our product. It sets ourselves as a global leaders, produce clean, green fibre, which is something we have so highly value our production system on. Oh. We do not want to lose that credential. So I think there is some very real reputational yeah. damage being done at the moment from people who are actually saying that farmers are these, you know, climate denying laggards when we most obviously are not. And, and, and you're really not. I mean, the, the stories that you hear are endless. Any farmer that you talk to will talk both about the very real impact on their farming operation. And in 20 years, I'm yet to talk to an Australian farmer who can't point to direct changes in rainfall patterns, soil moisture, when their growing season is or whatever it might be, but they all have a very real impact and a very direct impact. So they're able to, you know, as you say, walk out to the farm gate, walk out into the paddock and see that direct impact. And they've spent decades doing what they can on their farm to try and keep up. They're doing little bits. And a lot of the time, those isolated efforts, yes, they're having an impact. Yes, they're improving. But in the meantime, we're pouring a lot more carbon dioxide into the air with coal, with gas, the number of cars on the road. We refuse to take action on electric vehicles in this country. We refuse to take a sort of serious action on fuel emission standards or car emission standards in in Australia. We still subsidise diesel for the mining industry to the tune of billions of dollars a year. Our incentives are perverse when you think of what behaviours we actually want to encourage, at least what most Australians are looking for. And yet our incentive structures, where we invest our money in terms of uh, road and rail infrastructure, you know, we support these activities that we know to be harmful and we withhold investment from communities that are doing what they can with peanuts instead. You know, I, I sort of shake my head and I get frustrated and I get angry at times and we're not taking it seriously. So our national effort, and it's great to see some of the states, um, and I think all of the states now have have announced uh, at least a net zero by 2050 target, if not a more ambitious one. Most of them have uh, specific 2030 goals, and that's great and encouraging. But there are huge gaps in that policy landscape that can only be filled at a national level, and we're just not just not seeing them. Yeah, it's right. And yeah, going back to what you say, I mean, people like on the farms, they are doing a lot of good work. And some of the things that you know farmers are most proud of when you walk on their property and you get them chatting about their operation, they'll point to the shelter belts that they've planted and talk about the bird species, the amount of birds that have come back because they put that in the ground. They point to the solar panels or the wind turbines and feel proud about it. And they talk about how that's reduced the running costs of their businesses. But the rate and the magnitude at which climate change is happening is beyond farm scale now. So whatever I'm doing at farm level or my neighbours are doing or we're doing at regional level, it's not enough to actually keep pace with what's actually happening with our environment. You know, no matter how many trees we plant, we're not going to stop those dust storms rolling in because the temperatures are getting so high, vegetation is disappearing. And that's why we actually need national and global collaboration and coordination on climate change. When you have, you know, strong science-based climate policy, that actually gives encouragement and confidence to investors to put money in the right places, into the right projects. So we can actually see the rollout of more renewable projects, of the electrification of the regions. You know, it will support good organisations and good Mm. people doing good work. And that's what we need at this point. And so having that national climate policy is absolutely vital if we are going to take tackle this problem seriously. I've been encouraged uh, recently. I've been doing a, a little bit of work on a design challenge with the Bega Valley. The Bega Valley is looking to adopt a circular economy for their area. 
um, and they're looking at a variety of different ways in which that might be made manifest. There is a, a, a whole of Valley effort looking at a range of different, different initiatives and those initiatives are at different stages of development. But they're sort of going through this exercise and that, that exercise is being funded. It is being supported by the federal government, which is great to see. It's a small amount of funding relative to the scale of the challenge that we're talking about, but it hopefully will provide a model for other communities in you know regional areas and bigger valley is you know it's a desirable location for a range of geographical reasons it also has quite a strong economy anyway it's got a quite a large and well-known operation in the form of bigger cheese you know so it, it gets a lot of support from that but it's good to see that type of initiative, I would love to see that sort of initiative happening everywhere rather than, you know, being in a position where the one that's happening is is remarkable. But at least some of that sort of change is coming. One of the things that I find frustrating with this government is that on the one hand, they will fund initiatives like the Bigger Valley Circular Economy as a pilot study and, you know, a proof of concept, and yet work against those very outcomes that they're funding by their intransigence on climate change and their insistence on serving the interests of fossil fuel companies rather than the actual people that they have been elected to lead. And one of the things that I was thinking of earlier in the chat was that apart from the fact that farmers are leading on climate change and, and climate abatement, the federal government isn't just failing farming communities, they're failing the very communities that they're claiming to represent when they talk about coal mining communities and other mining communities and how, you know, we cannot possibly spend any money combating climate change if one regional job is lost. But they're denying so much investment and so many job creation initiatives and so many beneficial outcomes for these same communities by their insistence on representing the interest not of the actual coal mining workers who will, as soon as it becomes unfeasible to maintain coal mining operations, will be rendered unemployed. But it's that very narrow interest of fossil fuel companies, this sort of you know dichotomy and almost hypocrisy of, on the one hand, drip-feeding these little bits and pieces to things like the Bigger Valley Initiative, but then having a tsunami of opposite action coming forward anyway. It's I don't know how I feel about it. It's, it's kind of a bit mind-boggling, The you know, just trying to get my head around the logic behind it. Yeah, and that just transition is so critical when we talk about climate change. Like, how do we actually support people into the jobs of the future? And the people who work in those energy-intensive industries and, you know, coal, oil and gas they are caught up in this climate crisis and they need to be supported because we as a society have asked them to do that job, to be in that role. And that would be incredibly rude and mean of us if we then demonize them and say, hey, <laughs> you shouldn't be doing that and we're not going to help you actually transition to something else. So yes, we need to offer them support. We need to be giving them good information. We, they need to have complete understanding and transparency of what their industry's future actually looks like and how can they be supported into something else that is, you know, job and secure, that actually gives them financial security for their families. And as you say, it's not just a person or a family. It has whole of community effect for people in the regions. I mean, these are, are tight-knit communities. And so they will work together if they are given good guidance and allowed to have input into their direction. But at the moment, that is not happening. And it's not happening a lot because there is a toxic communication environment, which is putting fear into many rural communities, you know, making them actually fear job loss, increased household expenses, if we move from where we are now into a clean energy economy. And it's not the case. And yeah, that, that needs to be communicated properly and fairly for these people. Yeah, it's such a betrayal of those communities because, I mean, they entered into, you know, in some cases there are generations of families who have entered into that that work in good faith and that work was once a vital and, dare I say it, noble occupation. And you're right, to have it demonised and have it have, have the rest of the community going, well, tough, 
you can't do that anymore because, you know, you're killing the planet is well, it's quite vile, to be honest. And and we, we saw with the way the, again, the same government, which just blows my mind, the same government just pulled the pin on the car manufacturing industry practically overnight and there was no just transition, there was no support for those people. And they're dangling this, this thick leaf and this, this sort of illusion that, you know, coal mining communities can keep going forever, that we'll be selling coal 50 years from now. And the markets that these same government in sort of insists on being the be-all and end-all are deciding for those communities that their future is is going to be short-lived one way or another. And mm. it's it's very heartbreaking. It's, it's so vital, first of all, to give them unbiased, evidence-based policies and transitions and support to, to a new future and to a new way of living. And such a betrayal of those communities that this government can't see fit to do that, that they only they cannot see beyond you know, the short-term benefit to their parties and, and to their, uh, their ideology in terms of clinging to power and suppressing any vision or any sort of way forward for the, for the country. There was a paper released recently by the Australia Institute that went through an analysis of where the jobs are in coal mining. And it looked in particular, I think, at thermal coal. And it, it sort of broke down where they are and the sorts of jobs that they are. And, and a lot of the jobs are technical jobs. They're the sort of thing they're currently employed in coal mining operations, but they're not specific to coal mining. It might be uh, technology related. It might be transport and logistics related, uh, you know, what, whatever it might be. But they're sort of quite easily transferable to other industries. So if there's a different mining operation available, that job can easily transfer to that other uh, type of mining operation. And I think they arrived ultimately at a figure of maybe six or 800 jobs nationally that are only coal related. You, you couldn't do that job anywhere else. It's, it's, quite an, it's quite an explicitly coal mining affair. 800. That was that was basically it. Now, those are important. But when you sort of think about it, you go, it's the easiest way to achieve what we want to achieve is to manage that process of transitioning away from those jobs. It's actually the, the easiest way to do it. Like we can argue about it in being fair and just, and some people will buy that argument, but it's also the easiest way to do it. It'll probably be the most cost-effective way to do it and it will get us where we need to get to faster, which is shutting down those thermal coal operations. Yes, as you say, it is the easiest and cheapest way of helping tackle climate change is actually getting off the incredibly dangerous fossil fuels onto renewable energy. I mean, it is a no-brainer. And for anyone who thinks that we're going to be you know, burning coal when we flick on the light switch in a few decades' time has not read the brief. I mean, we're not going to be doing that and we're not going to be exporting our coal either because who's going to be buying it? No one. Those markets are all disappearing. There's a decent chance that all our electricity will be renewable by 2030. Prices and the economics of running a coal-fired power station are collapsing because renewables can do it cheaper. So instead yeah. of maintaining a coal operation, both the mine and the power station, and they, they need to go together, it's, it's becoming cheaper and cheaper, which means the price that you get for your energy drops. Mm. And that tends to then undermine the economics of running the great big power plants because you're not getting the same price for your electricity that you need to in order to actually continue that operation. Once the economics uh, gets undermined to a point, and we're not there yet, but we, we are increasingly, they'll just start shutting them down early. It won't be worth running them. For days at a time, they'll be generating electricity that they're having to pay for because the price will be negative. You know, And if they want to keep operating, they'll have to pay for it because there will be excess supply in the market from rooftop PV, from the solar panels in the vineyards who have more than they need and are, and are feeding it back into their local communities who are no longer drawing it from the coal-fired power station, they'll go. They, they will just disappear. But it'll be 2030, maybe 2035, before the last ones are, are switched off for good. That'll be a good milestone when the last one closes. Annika, you're a representative of Farmers for Climate Change and they are very, very carefully nonpartisan and politically neutral. The dilemma here, of course, is that this is a the podcast of a political party and we are, by nature, we talk about politics. Where does the 
farmers for climate action groups sort of sit on, I guess, where they would like to see politics in the country go on this. Obviously, you're fighting for climate action. You're fighting for our political leaders to lead on this issue. Is there is there going to come to a, a time, I guess, where the group is going to sort of swing their their influence and and their support behind either a movement or a political party that would commit to delivering the outcomes that you're looking for, or is it more just to raise awareness and and to you know continue the fight for anyone to step up and lead? Yeah. So Farmers for Climate Action is a nonpartisan movement of farmers and it's because we think all political parties all politicians you know stepping up and representing communities should be putting forward the most ambitious climate strategies and targets that they can possibly imagine and you know the strategies to achieve them and it should not be what it currently is in Australia of who can set the lowest target and win votes it should be the opposite it should be who is actually championing the most ambitious net zero target in the shortest time frame and the best strategies to get there. That's what we want to see. And so we're encouraging all political parties to have that kind of mind frame, because that's when we actually do see the most benefits flow into rural communities and the farming community, when we can actually tackle this problem in the the quickest possible way. So what Farmers for Climate Action does is a a variety of things. I mean, we we provide a, a network, a supportive community for farmers who are facing climate change, who are you know, fronting up to this challenge, realizing the enormity of the problem, but wanting to do something about it and are actually doing something about it. We're connecting them with researchers, so bringing the scientists to the region so farmers can actually understand what the projections are. How do we adapt to a changing climate? How do we reduce emissions on farms? Then we're working with industry bodies, such as the NFF, the New South Wales Farmers, the Ag Force, the grain grower groups, meat and livestock sector, and making sure that they have, you know, good climate understanding and strategies in place to assist their members in this challenging time. And of course, making sure the policymakers hear our concern and they realise the opportunities that are there, you know, within our reach. And we're also really encouraging farmers to be vocal about this issue, to stand up, to speak up, to say that this is a matter that concerns me, my family, my business. This is an issue that I will be casting my vote on and I want to see politicians, no matter what political party, treat this issue as a a serious and urgent issue that it actually is and put in place some strategies to help us get out of this mess. And this is something that I think we, you know, need to remember. It's not a, a them versus us, you know, rural versus urban and finger pointing and who's to blame. We're all in this mess together. We've all got to get out of this together. And only by working together and, you know, using the whole great diversity of skills and knowledge and expertise that we have as a society, as a nation, that's how we're actually going to you know, overcome this problem not in fragmented groups, not with division and alienation, by actually treating each other with with decency and respect and working out how do we work together to solve the greatest challenge that humanity has ever faced. That's brilliant. Thank you. Anika, you mentioned research, and I, I didn't want to let you leave without congratulating you on receiving your PhD. That was a recent milestone. So from us, congratulations. What was that Thank like? You. For you as 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 a moment in amongst everything that's going on? To be honest, I really struggled with my PhD. Um, <laughs> I, it, was, it was a long four and a half years for me. I had a lot of difficult, mm. difficulties with it. And, you know, I, I got there in the end, but I really do empathise mm. with other people who are studying and really struggling with it. But now I've got it. And I'm, I'm very yes. proud to have the little, you know, DR before my name and I'm I'm going to use it and sort of, you know, stand alongside science and help champion what the science is actually saying for us and the world and how best we can use it to better society and how people are interacting with the planet. What an achievement. That's so that's so good. The other Thanks. thing that I, I didn't want to let you go without asking is where can people 
buy your book. And I have personal, like I would thoroughly recommend it. It was a, a, a wonderful read, I have to say, both alarming and optimistic in, in fairly equal measure, but very well written and an, an important story that as many people as we can should be reading. Where can people find it? Well, thank you for that feedback, Steve. I really appreciate it. Uh, so my book was published by Pan Macmillan, and so you can okay. head along to their website to find my book. Also, I'm selling it from my own personal website, so anikamolesworth.com, and if, if you look up my name, you'll find me on most of the social media channels, and I'm constantly talking about my book because I love my book, and I really want to get these messages out there. Mm. <laughs> As well, you should. It's your baby. It does feel like, <laughs> like that. <laughs> mm. Uh, we'll make sure that we have uh, a link in the show notes, both to your website and uh, to Pan Macmillan, so people can buy the book from their, their most convenient place. And um, we'll do everything we can to plug it for you because, again, another huge achievement for you. It's It's been a big yes. couple of years. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you again to Anika. Dr. Molesworth, for joining us and for talking about what is, in Australia, a pretty depressing topic with genuine hope and clarity. I was inspired and I hope you were too. And Anika, congratulations again on being awarded your PhD. As a self-confessed nerd, it brings me such joy whenever someone completes a qualification. It makes all the hard work and stress in studying worthwhile. If you'd like to read Anika's book, Our Sunburnt Country, and you should because it's great, you can buy it direct from Anika at anikamolesworth.com or from a great bookshop near you. I've put a link in the show notes to Anika's website as well as to her book on her publisher's website so you have many book buying options available to you. I've also added links to the Democrat Sustainable Agriculture Platform and our Decade of Action on Climate Change platform as well. If you're curious about where the Australian Democrats stand on the issues that Anika spoke about. And I must ask again for our listeners' help. We're still working on meeting the new party registration requirements as we discussed in our first episode. So if your values align with ours and you want to help us return to federal parliament and keep the bastards honest, you can join us for free in less than a minute. I've put a link in the show notes. Thank you, as always, for your support. Keep the Bastards Honest is brought to you by the Australian Democrats. This episode was edited and produced by me, Alana Mitchell. If you'd like to keep in touch, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram by searching for Australian Democrats and you can see what we stand for, what we value and what our policy positions are at our website at democrats.org.au. Until next time, thanks for listening.